hey everyone. Welcome to episode 273 of F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a retired commercial photographer and Photoshop and Lightroom beta tester, Jeff Shiwi. Jeff is quite immersed and knowledgeable about the history of Adobe Photoshop and Lightroom and played important roles in the development of each. Just a warning, there is some profanity in this week's episode, so you've been warned. (laughs) Before we get started, I wanted to continue to encourage listeners to join me over on Nature Photographers Network. NPN is a great place for seeing photographs, receiving and sending critique, learning from your peers, and so much more. For example, my friend Alfredo Mora just released a great article about intentional camera movement that you should check out. Just head over to npn.link forward slash f-stop to join. That's npn.link forward slash f-stop. Use the code f-stop10 for a 10% discount as well. I look forward to seeing your images over there. Okay, let's get to the show with Jeff Shiwi. Jeff Shiwi, it's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks, Matt. I appreciate the invitation and uh, Holger uh, for uh, mentioning my name. Yeah, I'll blame it on him. (laughs) Right on. Yeah, no, I feel like your name has come up a few times from previous guests. And for some, you know how it is on Facebook, for some some reason, we connected at some point. We were Facebook friends. And when he had mentioned it, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm friends with that guy. Well, I, I'm almost run out of friends on Facebook, uh, and it's and it's interesting because particularly with the pandemic, uh, I've actually well, and then the political situation in America, I defriended a lot of people that posted about politics, left or right, and I I actively went out and looked for good photographers to be friends with. So my Facebook feed is filled with good photography. And and very little or no politics. And I've got friends all over the world because of that. I've got great friends in Russia, in Germany, uh, uh, Japan, uh, Australia. So that's been a, a benefit or a boon of social media. Um, so go ahead. No, you're good. That's that's really interesting. I uh, I was just thinking the opposite of that would be my friend Colby Brown, who almost only posts political posts. <laughs> It's just funny. <clears throat> well, so, you know, for people that aren't familiar with you, Jeff, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a retired, at this point, retired uh, commercial advertising photographer. Uh, I graduated from RIT in 1978 and moved to Chicago uh, because uh, at the time, advertising was on the decline on Madison Avenue in New York City. And, and clients were looking for agencies anywhere else in the world, uh, particularly uh, outside of New York City. And uh, so I came to Chicago. I was originally born in Chicago. I came back to Chicago just at the right time and was able to kind of catch the wave of anywhere but New York City advertising agencies. Uh, Fal McGilligan up in uh, uh, Minneapolis and Chiat Day out in California. So there were a lot of really good agencies. And uh, so that's how I basically decided to come back to Chicago. Uh, and uh, uh, my earliest 
reason for getting into photography was that I'm really a frustrated painter. Uh, I always I always wanted to be a painter or an illustrator. My grandfather was an art director, creative director here in Chicago in the 40s or f- and 50s. He's kind of like the epitome of madmen. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, so I, I didn't want to do commercial stuff. I wanted to be a, a painter, you know. Uh, but I had one shortcoming that I had a hard time getting over is I, I couldn't fucking draw. Um, and um, uh, I was good with my hands. So I could do sculpture and stuff. But that ultimately didn't interest me, although ironically it turned out that it was really helpful for my career later. So um, I was frustrated, and I ended up um, – my father would give me a camera for a birthday or something, and I was in the theater program at Illinois State here in uh, normal Illinois, and uh, somebody asked if anybody had a, a good camera so that we could shoot uh, dress rehearsal uh, for the play that we were producing. I was a, a stage crew. I was not an actor or anything. But uh, uh, And we were playing, we were uh, putting on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And so I, I volunteered to photograph, and I got to sit up in the balcony, and I, I basically got to tell everybody where to go and what to do and told the lighting director what lighting cues to bring up and, and uh, you know, pose the actors and stuff. And I thought, you know, well, if I can't draw, at least I can tell people what to do and then I can photograph it. So that's how I got into photography. Wow. And so what what uh, what what attracted you to the advertising side of things? Well, my grandfather was in the the arts, uh, but my father was in business and I tried to do a blend between uh, art, science and business. And I figured um uh, one of the ways that I could afford really expensive camera equipment was to actually get paid a whole lot of money for it. And my ultimate goal was to do really creative imagery with really good people for an obscene amount of money. Uh, any two of the above would work. Uh, and so that's really what the goal was. Now, when I moved to Chicago, I went to RIT and I almost flunked out because I went through the summer transfer program, which was uh, some of the best people that graduated from IT came through that because it was an intensive nine to five every day um, education of, of photo science and, and art. And it was really quite remarkable. I loved it. I loved, we had a quiz every Friday. We had a midterm and a final. I mean, it was like, you know, uh, but what ended up happening was that because of my background in art, they put me in photo illustration, so a BFA instead of a BS. And I got frustrated because we were sitting around in critiques and talking about how you felt and, and you know, uh, all this touchy-feely shit. And it was just driving me nuts because that's what, you know, the art, the whole thing uh, about the, the art world was. And so... Um, I finally found a, uh, a teaching assistant, uh, well, the instructor, a counselor, Terry Bowman, and anybody that went to RIT in the, in the 70s and 80s knows Terry. Uh, he convinced me to switch my degree to a 
Bachelor of Science, uh, uh, which is ironic because I have a BS in photography. Isn't that apropos? Uh, So to switch to the uh, pro photo department, and um, then uh, I did that, and I actually excelled uh, and ended up graduating with highest honors, which shocked the hell out of my parents. (laughs) In fact, when we went to graduation, they weren't even, they said, now, you said you're not graduating yet. You still have a, a one summer class you have to take. Yeah, I had to fill out an elective. And, but you are going to graduate. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. So I did. Uh, but then I came to Chicago, and the traditional way of getting into the business was to work as a, a slave, otherwise called a photo assistant, uh, work as a slave and and work for a number of photographers and then finally kind of work as a second photographer and then, uh, you know, open your own studio. So I worked as a freelance assistant one day. Uh, and I won't mention the photographer's name. He was shooting film. We were on a film crew. Um, so I was an assistant on a film crew for a still photographer. But what ended up happening was uh, we started, we had a 7.30 call and I didn't get home until four o'clock the next morning. It was just a really long day. And, wow. but I, I, you know, I got paid 75 bucks for that day. And I'm thinking, this is not what I got into photography for. So I got a job as a second photographer at a catalog studio, lasted there for a couple of years. And then I finally decided to hang out my shingle. And when I first started, I was a food and tabletop product photographer. Uh, and that was pretty good. I mean, Chicago is kind of a food town. Um, and, uh, Although I didn't, I did do, okay, I did McDonald's and Burger King. At one point, uh, I was working for both of them, and I got confused about what product was which. Um, but, you know, the agencies, they know that, and, the, and it was fine. So, you, so, uh, you're the one, so you're the one that we have to blame for the, the, the mischaracterization of the size of the, of the hamburger. Oh, yeah. Well, we cut the, we cut, <laughs> we cut the burger, <laughs> and then the home act would kind of pull the side apart so that it appeared wider. Uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff that we did, although they actually had a TA, a technical assistant that came to double check to make sure it was not an over promise or an under promise. So it was all very strict and tedious. Interesting. So what but, was it, uh, what, what was it about uh, the advertising world that kept you engaged as a photographer because I can, I could imagine that some listeners might be thinking to themselves, that sounds really fun. And some people might be thinking to themselves, like I would last 15 seconds in that. So I'm just curious for you. What, what was it that kept you in it? Money. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that's the crass answer, but like I said, doing really great work with really good people for an obscene amount of money. So it wasn't just money. Um, my goal was to, to do neat photography. Uh, and back, you know, in the 80s, 1980s, this is like 40 years ago, but were you even born then? I was. Oh, okay. So, Believe but you weren't a photographer then. No, I was uh, in like elementary school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, screw you, bud. Um, but anyway, so what ended up happening is that I fell in love with uh, a book called The Creative Black Book. And what it was was ads 
by some of the top photographers in the country and also the world. And I would go, I would pour through that every year. I would get the black book. And it was my crowning uh, achievement to actually afford to buy an ad in the black book. And I think it was in 1982 and it cost $5,000, 5000 that I didn't have, but they offered terms. So it, it was like 500 bucks down and then X amount a month. Uh, and quite honestly, it worked. Uh, I will tell you, advertising wow. works. Uh, and so I was able to make the money back off of that ad. And then the next year I bought a two page spread for 10 grand. Uh, but what it was, was it, it, the other thing, uh, that I fell in love with was if you look in the, uh, creative arts, the CA photography annual, uh, have you ever looked in there? I have not. Okay. Well, do your homework, Matt. You have to go out and find communi- communication arts, which is a really good, kind of design uh, marketing uh, magazine. But uh, every year they had an annual called the Creative Arts CA Photo Annual. And um, unbeknownst to me, an art director that that liked the work, the image that we did uh, together, he actually submitted it to CA. uh, And it was an ad of all things for a... um, a uh, uh, vinyl sighting company. And uh, it is one image that you should look. Uh, I'll make sure I give it to you. But And it's also on my uh, website. Uh, it, it ended up uh, being selected for communication arts. And because of that, it was picked by uh, the curator of the George Eastman House, who was doing a book, uh, John Sobizek. And he saw that image for a vinyl sighting company. And he thought that was pretty good. So that image was selected to be in the history of advertising photography, the art of persuasion. And uh, this was 1984. So it was pretty cool to have commercial art, advertising photography elevated to the part where it was, uh, well, it was art, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like you would have to do something pretty interesting to make a vinyl siding advertisement interesting, right? Um, so well, I so, did. Yeah, so it so won an award. Yeah, so and it's I'm, the only image that I've got uh, in the permanent collection at the George Eastman House. That's awesome. So, what is it? How how are you able to instill you, you know, Jeff Shiwi, into these images? Uh, that are for commercial work? Well, uh, Matt, I'm a reformed or retired uh, advertising photographer. What I used to do is, um, what I used to do is try to push the envelope. You know, the typical thing would be that you would get a layout, usually stick figures, not very flushed out. And the reason the art director would hire you is to fill out fill in the colors, as it were, to fill out what it would end up looking like. And they would hire you based upon your portfolio. And, you know, in those days, uh, we didn't have uh, uh, fax machines or cell phones. We didn't have social media. Hell, I don't think uh, FedEx was even around at that point. 
We used to use messenger services to send our portfolios around. But they would pick a photographer that they thought uh, could do what one art director called plus the design. They would plus the concept, take the concept and make it better. And for that, they were willing to pay sometimes a lot of money. Nice. Well, that's great. My most uh, most expensive photograph that I ever did was for Anheuser-Busch. And it wasn't a really great photograph. It was just really hellaciously difficult to produce. It was four rafters going down uh, uh, a, a, the white waters of a beer head. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, it didn't make any sense either, but I, I executed it well. Uh, but it was computer assembled by a lady down in Houston, and there were 14 different 8x10 transparencies that were scanned and combined into a single image, and including water and foam and, and the models. The art director kept picking different. Um, he couldn't just have two of the same. They had to have four different uh, poses, one head replacement, all of this done by computer. And it ended up costing Anheuser-Busch about 50 grand. Oh, wow. Now, I didn't make 50 grand. That's just what I built them. I don't remember what I made, but it was a little bit above uh, minimum wage. Right. And back then, that's a lot of money. I mean, yeah. it's a lot of and, money now, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, the thing about it, though, is that uh, <clears throat> commercial photography these days is actually much more difficult. It's uh, We can talk about that later, but. One of the things I was going to mention is that in the 80s, <clears throat> this concept of working with an art director's layout and coming up with a way of executing it, um, I turned to model making and set building. And going back to my art background, I was able to produce things that I could then photograph. So model making was a very key aspect to my uh, uh, photographic um uh, uh, niche, as it were. Uh, and then uh, part of that also turned into uh, uh, using the computer, multi-image commentations and montage. Now, I had done photo montage even back in school before, way before Photoshop, multiple exposures, uh, you know, combining multiple images in a negative carrier to print, um, or even doing things like Jerry Ulsman. Uh, who sadly just passed away not too long ago. Uh, Jerry used to be a master at being able to do photo montage in the darkroom. And I did some of that. Uh, but the, the computer, it was just so much easier to produce the images. Uh, and the first image that I produced that was pr manipulated by the computer was in 1984. And it was for um, St. Charles Kitchens, we shot a full-size kitchen set from above. I won't go into the difficulty of doing that. Uh, but then it, we put it on in the computer. We put it on top of a, a cutting block with a little artful arrangement of food and a knife. And it was kitchen on a cutting block. And the only way to do that would have been in the computer. Uh, and that was 1984. And that was about the time that uh, Thomas Knoll was just starting to play around with digital vision, computer vision, and, and maybe the early thinking of uh, uh, Photoshop. Well, maybe this is a, a perfect segue 
because one of the one of the main things I wanted to discuss with you is your your role in helping to develop Adobe Lightroom and Photoshop. So I don't even know where to start with that, but it's kind of your story to tell. But I would just love for you to talk about that journey. Okay. So uh, in the end of the 80s, there was a real kind of recession in the business. Uh, I got into commercial film direction, you know, directing commercials, uh, and decided that I really didn't like that because uh, I was on a film shoot and there were like 40 people on the crew and I knew three of them. And it was just, I was a manager. So what I wanted to do is to go back to being a simple photographer. <clears throat> and I figured the best way to do that would be to uh, take control of the digital imaging so that I could produce the images uh, and then combine them together. And in 1992, I spent about 30 or $35,000 of money that I didn't have. I, I told my wife, I said, I got to get a computer so I can run Photoshop. And it was a Quadra 950 with 64 megabytes of RAM, 64 <laughs> megabytes of RAM. Okay. And um, uh, I ended up getting a one gigabyte hard drive. The first one that I had was 500 megabytes. <clears throat> you're you're laughing because no, I, you know, I, remember, I remember. I mean, I I remember my first computer was like not as good as that, so I totally remember those days. But what ended up happening was that um, for some reason the memory that I had was not a hundred percent compatible, and uh, I would get to a certain size file in Photoshop and it would crash. Well, I called Adobe Tech Support. And actually talked to a fellow by the name of Matt Brown. I actually met him. I went out there and met him after the fact. And he said, I, I didn't know the computer could hold 64 megabytes of RAM. He said, well, let me, let me turn you over to an engineer. And uh, so my technical issue got turned over to an engineer. Uh, and ultimately, I ended up uh, meeting him. Uh, his name was Mark Hamburg. And... Uh, uh, that uh, was an interesting first introduction to digital imaging. Uh, but what ended up happening was that um, I used to, when I got Photoshop, you know, there wasn't, there was like one book about Photoshop. There wasn't, uh, you know, YouTubes on how to do things in Photoshop. It was Photoshop 2.0 uh, in 1992. Uh, so there was a thing on uh, AOL Tuesday night, at seven o'clock was the Photoshop chat. And uh, it was started by a fellow by the name of Kai Krauss, who did KPT, Kai's Power Tools, uh, Photoshop filters, uh, and a software company called HSC Software. And some of the, the geeks in the audience will remember these guys. Kai looked like Jesus Christ. He had this kind of aura about him that he was like, uh, you know, a mystic or magical but Mark Hamburg, Thomas Knoll, um, some of the other Photoshop engineers and some of the Illuminati of the digital, or let's call them the Digerati, uh, would show up on Tuesday nights and on the Photoshop chat. And so I would be able to ask questions. And I actually uh, helped Mark solve a bug in Gaussian Blur. There was a a data corruption at a certain radius. If you if you went to a certain radius, 
the re- results would, would be corrupted. And he was trying to track down this bug. And I was able to duplicate the bug and find exactly where that happened. Well, fast forward to Photoshop 3, uh, Mark Hamburg uh, and I had kind of developed a friendship. And uh, so I have become a Photoshop uh, beta tester. And so I started beta testing Photoshop, which is a great way of learning how to use the program is get it before it's finished and then uh, be able to offer some input. Uh, And that was useful. But I also, Kai Krauss had come up with a program called Live Picture. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It was a program. It was basically a proxy system for dealing with image processing. You would scan in high-res images, and it would work on a proxy of the image. So you could rotate it, you could filter it uh, almost in real time. And these were like big 50 or 100 megabyte files, which in Photoshop in the old days, you'd run a, like unchart mass filter on a big file and you could go to lunch and come back and it was still running. Um, but uh, so... Uh, live picture was this really cool thing. And I went out to California for uh, uh, Macworld. And that's where I met a lot of these people in person. Um, and uh, so I, I was working in live picture, working in Photoshop uh, as a beta tester. And I was under NDA with everybody. But it was interesting because they would always ask me what I thought because they knew that I was working with the enemy too. I was like Switzerland. Um, and I didn't break my NDA, but I did have a very informed opinion. Uh, and so when Adobe, there was a long period of time after Photoshop 3 shipped before they started ramping up to Photoshop 4. And this is Photoshop 4.0, not CS4. Right, right, The right, whole right. creative suite ruined Photoshop. Um, but, uh, oh, did I say that out loud? I guess I did. Um, the... Uh, so when they started working on Photoshop 4, Hamburg had hired a UI designer by the name of Andre Harazmanchuk, um, and they wanted to make a major change in the behavior and the logic uh, and the feature set of Photoshop 4. And they were worried because they it was going to be like a major thing. So they brought me in as a uh, off-site alpha tester and I sat down at a computer, and this was when they were in Mountain View before they moved to San Jose. And they gave me Photoshop 4, and they said, okay, so do what you would normally do and, and see if you can figure out how to do it. Well, brand new UI, the shit's in different places, menus are different, tools are different. And they wanted to see if I could figure it out and where the pain points would be, and I was able to do it. Uh, and so that earned me kind of a rarefied status of being an alpha tester, which meant that that Mark Hamburg and some of the Photoshop engineers would turn to me to find out the feasibility or practicality of certain features. And then also ask me what I would want. You know, how, how would you make the program better? Uh, and I was able to um, kind of collect a cadre of uh, influential, um, what we now call influencers back then, they were, they were basically called bright boys, people like Bruce Frazier, 
Martin Evening, uh, Seth Resnick, Katrine Eisman. There's a whole list of them. Stephen Johnson, um, Andrew Rodney, uh, Seth Resnick, among others, uh, to basically give input. Uh, also, to, for them to be able to ask us before it was even written in code, how a feature should be able, what the behavior and the functionality should be, which is it's much easier to change it upstream than it is downstream. Once a feature is already written and kind of locked in code, they can't go back. Uh, well, they are reluctant to go back upstream uh, and and start over again. So. That's basically how I got involved, and <clears throat> I'm not a coder. I don't write code, but what I've developed a, a really good knack at is learning how to punch the buttons of engineers, how to get them to do what I wanted them to do or what I thought they should do. So that's how I basically got, and it was funny because there were people at Adobe that had no clue who the hell I was. I knew stuff that people within the company didn't even know. I had, you know who Russell Preston Brown is, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I had Russell emailing me, asking me how to use a feature because he knew I had it and he hadn't gotten it yet. <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, so basically what ended up happening was that Photoshop, and Photoshop was the king at Adobe. They made more money on PDF uh, and uh, and fonts. They really made money on fonts. But at some point, Photoshop itself became such a huge seller that that was the most important uh, product at Adobe. And boy, the Photoshop engineers were, they were a, uh, an elitist group of high profile, you know, high bright boys, really good talent. And some of them were kind of a little weird, you know. Sure. Sure. So how did you get involved in Lightroom? Because I think at some point you had mentioned to me, or maybe I read it or something that like literally Lightroom was basically invented for you. Yeah. Uh, I say that jokingly and it's actually, well, it's actually true. Hamburg, it's, and this, this was the Photoshop 7 was the last version that Hamburg had anything to do with. After Photoshop 7, he washed his hands of Photoshop. In fact, he actually said that to me in a cab. I washed my hands of Photoshop. He says, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. He's going to play on with stuff. And what he ended up playing with is a thing. Initially, he called it Pixel Toy. And it was uh, Mark had developed a feature in Photoshop that very few, few people really understand, but he wrote it exactly for me. And that was the history feature in Photoshop. So a lot of people use the history feature to be able to, you know, step back in time if they screw up. Right. Not many people know how to use snapshots and be able to fill or clone from a snapshot and blend multiple states of an image together. And that's what the history feature was. And that's really... Uh, what Mark sent me a, 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 an alpha copy with the history feature and it had um, multiple undo and it had uh, a thing called nonlinear history. Have you ever seen that in the options, Matt? I don't, th I don't think I have. Okay. So in the history options of Photoshop, you can go in there and it says allow nonlinear history. 
Well, I looked at that and it's like, what the hell is that, Mark? He said, well, uh, uh, do you ever read science fiction? I said, yeah. He said, well, it's a grandfather principle. If you have the allow nonlinear history unchecked, if you go back in time and make a change, you know, like kill your grandfather, the rest of future disappears. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, because, hey, you killed your grandfather, nothing else happened after that. If you go back in time with allow nonlinear history, you can go back and make a change to an image and then go forward in time without altering the future. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? I totally and then, So you can make a change back then. So it's like branching a different universe. And that's what... Uh, so anyway, Mark came up with that and he ended up with uh, Software Inventor of the Year. He got a, a patent and um, a lot of accolades and, and it all came for this little feature that he wrote for, for me. Because Mark is the kind of guy that um, his job was to develop the feature called uh, multiple undo. But why do something simple when you can do something really rich and complex, like, you know, the grandfather like principle? Two timelines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Or more. You can branch off multiple timelines. I mean, the universe, it's, it, it's unlimited. Uh, so when he left the Photoshop team, uh, he played with uh, a little project he called Pixel Toy. Um, between the two of us, he called it Chiwi Paint. Uh, but I I kept saying to Mark, it was a, an entirely different way of adjusting images, and it was actually pretty cool. In fact, I can give you a URL, a URL on the history of Lightroom and the early development Pixel Toy and Shatterland. Shatterland was the code name for Lightroom. But what uh, Mark basically wanted to do is he wanted to do his Photoshop. Photoshop was done by Thomas Knoll. Well, uh, Mark was the number two engineer hired to work on Photoshop. And he was like, basically, Thomas was the father, but the uh, Mark Hamburg was really the stepfather since Thomas didn't work for Adobe. So what ended up happening was that um, Andre and Mark and Thomas Knoll and Sandy Alves and... Um, uh, I think there was somebody else, got together at my studio, which was kind of Thomas came over from Ann Arbor and those guys came in from San Francisco. And we talked about what photographers need. What would, okay, we got Photoshop, but what do photographers need? And in the old days, old days, 1990s, right. <laughs> well, that's the old days. It yeah, used yeah. to be people used to shoot a shitload of film and then scan one or two things, right? Well, with digital, you shot a shitload of digital captures and tried to figure out where the hell they were and how to find one. Right. And so what we needed was a digital asset management system that could allow photographers to store their images in a database for easy access and finding. And then, of course, we had raw capture. And, and I was also heavily involved in the development of Camera Raw uh, with Thomas Knoll. And... Uh, so we needed to blend the ability to do raw processing uh, adjustments, the, the meta, uh, metadata adjustments, um, and then combine that with an overall program that would allow photographers to access the images, import them, work on them, 
and then export them to various uses like printing, web, um, uh, slideshows, whatever. And that's really that first meeting was trying to get Thomas and Mark to, to talk to one another because Mark had left the Photoshop team. Thomas wasn't doing much in Photoshop. He was doing camera raw. So it was trying to get them to collaborate together. Uh, and that worked out. And Lightroom was born. And uh, and it's funny because some people say, well, Lightroom was copying um, Aperture. You know, oh. Apple had Aperture. You remember that? Yep. Yep. Well, the funny thing is the guy that wrote Aperture was a former product manager of of Adobe Premiere that went to Macromedia that that made a um, uh, image editing application go live. Uh, uh, no, what is Apple's? Um, now I can't remember. They bought it from Macromedia. Oh, Flash? I'll look it up and tell you. No, not Flash. Flash was no. shit. Um, but uh, uh, so anyway, he was done with that program. It, <clears throat> it was their video editing program that Apple had. And so uh, I won't mention his name, but he he started taking digital pictures and came up with a concept <coughs> of doing a database program, not unlike Lightroom. And the funny thing is Hamburg and this guy were friends and, and they both knew that they were working on kind of competing products. Uh, I don't know how much cross-fertilization there may have been, but one did not cause the other. One did not... Uh, uh, influence or, uh, uh, you know, Lightroom and, and uh, Aperture came out essentially within about three or four months of each other. The Lightroom, the first beta public release was in 2006, and that was just after the Photo Expo that fall, the previous fall that Apple had uh, announced Aperture. So it, it was a boon or a benefit for uh, photographers and uh you know, it's the major player in the marketplace uh, for digital photographers, not unlike Photoshop is the the 800-pound gorilla in terms of digital imaging. Yeah. What what has it been like uh, seeing the evolution of Photoshop and Lightroom over the years? Because it's, even in my time, it's, they both changed pretty radically. Um, I got two approaches. Uh, I'm tickled to death that everything has come as far as as it has because um, uh, there is so much power and control in the hands of photographers these days, not only just in terms of the cameras, the digital cameras, um, LED lighting, the raw image processing, uh, the, um, uh, you know, ability to work in Photoshop, and then digital printing. Don't even get me started on digital printing, uh, because, uh, well, I mean, we've got uh, uh, digital printers that can produce pigment prints that can last longer than uh, chemical prints, you know. So uh, it's it's kind of the ultimate stage of photography. I mean, everything you could possibly want, you can do. Um, that's one hand. On the other hand, it's like they've got a whole bunch of shit that they got to fix and make easier. Um, and, and, you know, sky replacement technology just doesn't move the needle for me. Uh, you know, the most recent version of Photoshop, when they came out with the sky replacement, it's like, 
okay, so you can replace a sky, but you got to go out and know how to shoot a sky that will actually blend into the the, the replacement and and have the proper lighting and light direction and, and color and and so on one hand it is a boon and on the other hand it's a bane. Yeah, that feels right to me. <laughs> uh, I'm curious what what are some features that you wish either of them did better? Um, well, the most recent uh, update uh, or one of the more recent update in Lightroom. Uh, had a massive ability to um, uh, do masking. And the masking feature in Lightroom, the current uh, classic, I I don't know about Lightroom, the CC, I don't use that. Uh, Although I do like Lightroom Mobile, I don't use the CC. Um, But there are other things. uh, For example, uh, one of the things that I've been doing a lot of is I've been doing a lot of uh, camera captures, camera scanning of of old uh, transparencies. Oh, okay. uh-huh. Pandemic, I couldn't go anywhere. So I bought a rig from Peter Kogue, uh, mount my, my uh, Z7 Nikon uh, with a, a, a slide duplicator and an LED backlight. And so I'm doing these uh, captures, 45 megapixel captures of 35 millimeter slides, which is fine. I get the grain, film grain, and, and the resolution is, is really great. And I, uh, although Kodachrome is a little wanky, it's hard to color correct Kodachrome uh, initially. But, you know, I've got dust spots. And, and uh, quite honestly, the, the spot removal tool in Lightroom, uh, it, it's much better in Photoshop, the spot oh, it's, tool was- in Photoshop. You stole my answer because I was going to, if you weren't going to say that, I was going to be like, that's like the number one thing that Lightroom sucks at is spot removal. Like, why can't they make it the same tool that's in Photoshop that's like a thousand times better? Well, do you you want the technical answer, Matt? Sure. (laughs) Because it's editing metadata. It ain't editing pixels. You have to understand that Lightroom, everything that you're doing to Lightroom in the develop module it's not actually happening. Right. It's just a record of the adjustment that you're actually recording. Right. It's not actually, doesn't happen to the pixels until right. you export. Right. And in Photoshop, you actually have the access to the actual Photoshop. Right. Uh, you have the RGB pixels. Um, that makes so that, there's that. Uh, and then what the, here's the one that just drives me absolutely fucking nuts. When you crop an image in Lightroom, you can't zoom in. Right. Well, okay, so tell me how that's a good idea. You want to get a very precise crop on an edge of an image, and all you can do is, is do the crop on the fit. <clears throat> so that drives me nuts. Me too. Yeah, yeah. Just a simple thing. Be able to zoom in. And functionally, that has nothing to do with Photoshop versus Lightroom. That's just a, a and you can do it in Camera Raw. You can zoom in in Camera Raw, but not in right. Lightroom. Which is using the same engine, right? Yes, Basically. the same underlying raw processing engine. Right. Yeah, it's frustrating. <laughs> well, one more thing about uh, about Lightroom and Photoshop. I know that, so I understand that you uh, you also helped develop some Photoshop plugins. And I was curious what that process was like and why you decided to embark on that particular journey. Well, 
there's the short history and the long history. I'll give you the short history. Um, we were approached by somebody. Uh, his name is Mike Skirsky, and he was a plug-in developer. He wrote code. He was an actual uh, software engineer, and he had written plugins. And he said, you know, we ought to get together and write some plugins for Photoshop. You guys know how to do a lot of stuff in Photoshop. <clears throat> and so what we did was we created a line of uh, plugins called uh, PhotoKit. Uh, and it was PhotoKit, the original one, uh, PhotoKit Color, which Martin Evening helped uh, design, and PhotoKit Sharpener, which Bruce Frazier helped design. And in the 90s, uh, and the well, you know, in the 90s, when people were trying to learn how to do graphic arts and how to sharpen images, nobody knew how to do that stuff. And Bruce had written about a multi-stage sharpening approach in the 90s. So when we decided to do this plugin, we came up with the concept of breaking the sharpening into three discrete separate approaches. You have capture sharpening to regain the apparent sharpness lost in the digitizing of the image. And then you had creative sharpening, and then you had output sharpening. Mm -hmm. um, uh, capture sharpening was image dependent. Uh, creative sharpening was, you know, uh, artist dependent, whether mm -hmm. you sharpen one area and make another area soft. But the output sharpening was actually a determinative process. You could, if you knew the final resolution and you knew what kind of device and what kind of paper it was going to be on, you could produce a sharpening. And so that's what we did. And, and PhotoCut Sharpener was very successful. Um, close to a million dollars worth of software sales. Wow. <clears throat> um, now that's again, not profit. Sure. No, I get <laughs> that cost of running and doing the business, but we sold a million dollars worth of Photoshop plugins. Uh, but uh, um, so it was Pixel Genius was the company that we started. And it was myself, Bruce Frazier, uh, Martin Evening, Seth Resnick, Andrew Rodney, and Mike Skirtsky, who was the engineer. Um, in 2006, sadly, Bruce passed away and so did Mike Skirtsky. Uh, and we got a different fellow. Uh, Matt Colbert, who was the, uh, basically the, the uh, uh, developed Nash editions with Graham Nash, which was a fine art printing atelier. And he, you know, Matt knows a lot about printing. And so he took over Bruce's uh, role as product manager for Photokit Sharpener. And just about the time that Bruce passed away, we had been in negotiation to license uh, the output sharpening of PhotoKit Sharpener to Adobe, and we did. We uh, So the output sharpening that is in Camera Raw and in Lightroom in the print module and the export module, uh, that's based upon the Pixel Genius PhotoKit Sharpener sharpening. Gotcha. Uh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, and um, it works also, really good. Yes. Yeah, it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, one of the reasons is that in the case of the printing, I've got a picture somewhere <clears throat> that I took. The, uh, one of the guys that was the software engineer, when we incorporated it into Lightroom's output sharpening, he came to Chicago and spent three or four days. And all we did was make prints. And he would write code, make adjustments, and we'd make prints. 
<clears throat> so it was literally a trial and error, how to push it, how far to push it, don't push it too far. You know, we discovered, well, we knew, Bruce knew that there had to be different sharpening for matte paper versus glossy paper. Um, and and so that was very successful. Uh, it was, I was always irritated that um, Adobe didn't license it for Photoshop. Uh, we'd have made a shitload more money. <laughs> uh, yeah, but they licensed it for uh, uh, Camera Raw and Lightroom, and that was uh, very beneficial at the time. Uh, and then Bruce had gotten a contract to consult uh, on, on on updating the sharpening component of Camera Raw and then Lightroom. And he passed away, so I took over the, the contract, and uh, I consulted with the uh, actual sharpening in Camera Raw version 4.1 and it went from you know like two sliders to four sliders plus three uh noise reduction so all of a sudden noise and sharpening became very important in fact sharpening is actually sharpening and noise reduction are two sides of the same coin on one hand you want to sharpen the edges and on the other hand you want to reduce the noise in the in the surfaces, edges versus surfaces. Right. So, uh, and between you and and the lamppost, this won't get back to Adobe, right? I mean, unless someone at Adobe is listening. Oh yeah. Well, they <laughs> might. Um, the funny thing is, you know what Adobe actually the, what the deliverables were for the what they licensed from uh, uh, from uh, Pixel Genius. I, I couldn't even guess. A whole bunch of Photoshop actions. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so we had written the actions to create the sharpening, and we gave them the actions. And so what they did was they ended up paying for uh, actions, <laughs> Photoshop actions. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was delicious irony. Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, I love I love writing my own actions all the time. It's that's one of the coolest things about Photoshop. Well, that's the one thing that we got really good at. Martin and Bruce and I got really good at writing uh, unbreakable actions. And and quite honestly, uh, the although the plugins won't work anymore, PhotoKit Sharpener won't work. I tried. I got it working on my iMac Pro on Catalina. And then I just got the M1 with Monterey as a laptop and the Mac Studio. And I can't, there's, I can't, it won't run. It just, um, so those are end of life. But I'm thinking about actually releasing uh, the Photoshop actions. That could be interesting. Well, so now that you've kind of retired from commercial work and you've somewhat retired from the, you know, the software side of things, I'd love for you to talk kind of what's come next in your life in photography. I understand that you've kind of transitioned more into fine art photography and would like for you to tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was the last couple of years. After I retired from photography and software, when Bruce passed away, I took over his real world camera raw book uh, and then ended up, um, that ended up being end of life. And then I came up with two new books, the digital negative and the digital print. I don't know if you've read those. Have you read those? I have not. Oh, shame on you. I know. They're, 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 uh, well, the print version is out of, uh, uh, out of print for the digital negative, but you can get the digital book. Uh, but the digital print book is still relevant and, uh, useful. 
and is still sold. Um, I'm, one, kind of I'm one of those. Like, I'm one of those boneheads that like just tries stuff until I can get it right on my own, and it takes me like four times as long as it would if I would have just read about it or watched a video. <laughs> but those books, uh, basically, the whole technical book market has been died off because quite on and and same thing with plugins um there's just not a lot of market left uh and the problem with uh, photoshop is with the subscription basis now the incremental rollout of features <clears throat> it used to be that every 18 months or so there'd be a whole new version with a lot of new features and people would pay money to read books to learn how to use it well now you know there's free youtube stuff and uh, there's a YouTube expert about everything. Not that they necessarily know what the hell they're talking about, but, um, um, you know, you can Google it. But what ended up happening was that <clears throat> the, the Photoshop book has kind of died off. Martin Evening and I and, and a lot of the people, Deke McClellan, some of the people that have, have kind of made a lot of um, uh, leverage in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, having influence over the Photoshop and the marketplace, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so then, um, 2019, uh, my wife and I decided, uh, I had gotten to the point where I hated working in the studio. And instead of like getting the equipment out and setting up the lights, and uh, if I wanted to do a shot, I just opened the garage door, put a background with a couple of light modulators and did shot available light. So uh, I just didn't need the studio. I needed a good digital imaging area, but I just didn't need the size. I, you know, I could, I shot tractors in there. I've shot trucks in there. I shot cars in there. Um, at one point, I think I had five or six sets going uh, for a, a, a multi-week shoot uh, for product photography. Uh, but I, I, you know, I didn't do that anymore. And, and quite honestly, my wife and I, we bought the house right next door to the studio. We ended up selling it to a developer and he put up uh, million dollar condos. But we ended up moving um, a little bit further north into a place called Roscoe Village, which is a much nicer neighborhood than ours had become. Uh, our neighborhood was too ritzy. And um uh, so I was able to get a bigger house, but a smaller studio. And so then in 2019, I get back from doing a road trip with Kevin Raber and uh, uh, shooting in uh, Death Valley and then up to um, Alabama Hills, Bono Lake, and then over to Yosemite. We come back from that, and that's uh, end of November then coming around in January, February, pandemic hits and, and Chicago was hit pretty hard. We were locked down and then we had a lot of the uh, racial strife. And so I just, I didn't go anywhere. I didn't do anything. So I started getting into uh, looking at my body of work and trying to come up with collections, bodies of work. Uh, and that's led me towards the fine art world. Okay, so, well, one of the things that happened was I had been to uh, the uh, uh, Palm Spring Photo Festival, and I, I had a, a couple of informal portfolio reviews. I didn't say I, I was doing other stuff, 
uh, and then shooting in, in Joshua Tree. Um, but last year here in Chicago, we have a thing called Filter Photo. They have a, a festival every year. They have portfolio reviews. So last year in September, like in between the pandemic bouts, um, they I had my first three portfolio reviews. And I had worked to collect a body of work that I showed the viewers. And um, it was kind of eye-opening. I got frustrated with the fact that um, I'm not black, brown, yellow. I'm not gay or trans. I'm not been the victim of sexual abuse or confirmation bias or racism. Uh, I'm not a photojournalist. Um, so, um, and I'm not a documentarian. Uh, I just, you know, I'm not a radical liberal or conservative. Uh, I'm not poor or deprived, and I'm not particularly worried about what people think of me. So in some regards, all I'm trying to uh, be interested in, uh, you know, as an old white guy that uh, has been successful, uh, both technically and financially savvy, uh, uh, I can do pretty much anything I want to do. And all I really want to do is produce neat images. And, and what I've found in the fine art world is um, people are not quite sure what to do about that. Yeah. They like neat images, you know. Sure. Uh, but um, they want to have a narrative. They want to have some social uh, impact. They want to have, you know, I mean, uh, you know, um, some of the best photographers uh, got their um, start because they were highly controversial. And yet people like Ansel Adams or Edward Weston, uh, it's been interesting uh, now, I went to RIT, so I took photo history, but I'm revisiting 20th century photo history again. <clears throat> I find Edward Weston and his family, uh, Brett and Cole, and now Kim, and and Kim's son, Zach, four generations of fine art photographers. Um, I find it very interesting that uh, uh, they've had really a hard time because um, so much is um, basically fine art photography is kind of broken down into two big chunks, decorative and collective. Yeah. So if you've got decorative art, people will buy it because it's pretty and they'll hang it on the wall because they love it. Yep. But they're not going to spend a lot of money on it because it's not, quote, collectible. Right. Uh, and it's also not something that photo dealers are particularly interested in selling because for them, they have to sell volume. Uh, they'd much rather sell, you know, a vintage Man Ray or a vintage um, uh, Steichen or, you know, any of the vintage dead photographers uh, than, 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 you know, a live photographer that has no kind of like really huge baggage or, uh, you know, no uh, terribly interesting story attached to it. So I find uh, fine art photography to be quite frustrating. Most of the fine art, and I know quite quite a few of them, are also equally frustrated with with galleries and dealers, and uh, most of the people. It's tough to make a living selling prints. Most people have to do workshops uh, or ancillary uh, sources of income, uh, and can't reside, can't rely on just being a uh, well paid fine art photographer. That. You know, you've got that same problem too, right? 
Oh, for sure. I mean, part of my problem is that I live in an expensive mountain town in Colorado. So my expenses are also incredibly high, but you know, you've got the same problem in Chicago, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. But, um, Although I, I, I was, I was, uh, happy to find out that you uh, lived in Durango, Colorado. It's my favorite town. Uh, I used to go down and teach in Santa Fe at the Santa Fe workshops. Yeah. And I would drive down uh, on the interstate, go fast, just <laughs> to get there. Yeah. Teach my class. And then I, myself or, and sometimes my wife would ride our motorcycles back. Uh, and one of my favorite rides was to basically go up, um, in New Mexico to um, Abiquiu and um, sure. uh, uh, Ghost Ranch and then uh, go up uh, basically and end up in Durango and then go up the million dollar uh, highway, 550. Yep. Um, and and it's just like, you know, shooting fish in a barrel. Every, everywhere you look, it's a beautiful photograph. Yeah. Now, of yeah, course, it's... you've got to be there at the right time and with the right equipment and stuff, but I've gotten some really nice shots along that route. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's, especially in fall, it's, it's a pretty amazing drive just between here and here in Uray. There's like tons of amazing scenes. And then the other uh, drive is out of Aspen going now over uh, independence pass and then going back up to Leadville, um, I, I stayed overnight in Leadville and, and we rode our motorcycles in, got there at dusk and we're like at the main hotel. I can't remember the name of it, but they said, oh, yeah, we have rooms. Uh, they're on the third floor. And it's like, so we don't have an elevator. OK. And Leadville is uh, 10, one of the highest. Oh, it's over 10,000. It's like just under 11,000, I think. Yeah, it's up there. And at the time I was a smoker. And carrying my, I took one trip up to the room on the third floor. I thought I was going to die <laughs> because I just couldn't breathe at that altitude. Yeah. Uh, so fortunately, I quit smoking. And and uh, uh, but anyway, uh, Colorado, you live in a an uh, uh, interesting state, but uh, you probably have to rely upon uh, tourism as a way of selling. Uh, a lot of of prints and that takes a gallery and you know it's interesting um i think traditionally speaking i think that's how probably the majority of people have been able to find any success at selling prints you know especially landscape photography but um yeah my approach is totally different like i don't have a physical presence um but i have a pretty a pretty good uh online presence that generates quite a bit of traffic. So um, that's useful. What I've been doing is I've been just putting my head down, doing my stuff and and not being overly concerned. Now, I did submit some work, for example, on the uh, R photo folio and a collection of work called, I called the um, tin, cactus tin types was selected for the 2021 um folio uh, selection. I didn't win the award, but I mean, it was the folio was selected. And it was interesting. That was one of the bodies of work that I showed at the filter photo. And I showed it, I won't mention her name, but she was involved in a college in New Mexico. So I thought she might get a kick out of it. And I'm showing her these 
tintype shots of saguaro cactus, right? Tintypes. It looks like tintypes. And she loved it. And, and, and she was really impressed that I was working in an antique process. And I said, oh, no, no, no. These are digital tintypes. These were shot with an iPhone using an app called Tintype. And it takes the color image and turns it into a tintype. And she looked at me and her face fell. And it was like, you know, I, 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 it was like I had farted or something. It's uh, like you, you was, broke, you broke, you broke the, fifth, the fourth wall. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so that was, that was interesting. Um, uh, I actually did a video on how I did it. It's available at the photo pixel, www.photopxl.com. Uh, of how I actually did it. And I had one of the guys post something on the forums about, you know, how dare I fake a process uh, such as, uh, uh, you know, tintype. I should go out and buy the chemistry and do it. Uh, it's like, but it won't produce a better image, will it? One of the things that I tend to see in a lot of photographers, and I don't know if you agree with me, um, and we can settle this by arm wrestling, Arm wrestle? No. Perfect. Yeah, we um, can do that. Uh, is that photographers tend to get overly invested in a process and tend to forget about the role that the process is designed for, and that is producing the final image. You know, you, you can get all wrapped up in how to produce something, but what really matters to the vast majority of the people is what does the image look like at the end? And one of the things that I had a hard time, uh, you had mentioned asking me about uh, APA, Advertising Photographers of America. And I was uh, originally involved in the steering committee in APA Chicago, forming the chapter, going to New York. Uh, and this was in 1981. We were a trade organization fighting for photographers' rights and to improve business practices. Uh, you know, billing and and agencies and, you know, they shouldn't be taking 120 days to pay, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, all the typical stuff that photographers, uh, but one of the problems was how photographers price things. And a lot of times photographers would price things based upon how difficult the photographic, the photograph was and not how valuable it would be to the client because, the, the odds are the client wouldn't understand the process anyway. Right. But what they would do is look at the image and perceive the value of the image as to how much money it would make them. Right. Uh, and that was a tough battle uh, that we fought in APA. I paid a price for that because um, obviously uh, I, I, stood, I didn't do work for hire. I stood up for photographers uh, doing billing and and uh, some photographers didn't like the fact that I would call them out and some agencies didn't like the fact that I was actually a good businessman uh, <clears throat> and I kind of got out of APA when I kind of retired around 2001 from uh, basically after 9-11 commercial advertising photography went into what I call the uh, a, a lull basically the country um, was so kind of shocked by what happened that um, everybody went to, 
I mean, they were still advertising, but it was just informational advertising. It wasn't, it was selling the steak, not the sizzle instead of the other way around. And I couldn't get paid for doing what I used to get paid a lot of money to do. Uh, and I didn't want to do it for less money. So I kind of stepped out of it. And it's interesting, APA is still around. In fact, they're still using the same logo they uh, that we had developed for them when I was president in 2000, uh, in the year 2000. Uh, so anyway, they in 2010, they renamed it to the American Photographic Artists, uh, which is fine. And, uh, you know, they do good work. It's a trade organization. Uh, sadly, uh, I was at a... Uh, hosted Zoom meeting online through uh, Palm Springs Photo Festival on one of their events. And they were talking about the exact same problems. They're fighting the exact same battles that we fought in the 1980s. They're fighting it again today. So Yeah, it doesn't uh, surprise me. Like, and that's no. a, one of the things we talked about on this podcast before is how photographers just have this knack for undervaluing themselves, which then is a, has a negative impact on all of their peers as well. Yep. Yeah. It's the problem that um, uh, a lot of people in the creative arts, it's not just photographers, it's also painters and sculptors and anybody who works and produces intellectual property as opposed to personal tangible property. Uh, has a hard time determining what the value of that property should be. You know? Sure. Yeah. No, I get it. It's not easy, but at the same time, like you're offering, like in thinking about prints, you're if you've been doing this for a while, you're probably offering something that's got a higher value than what you can buy at IKEA. Yeah. You know. So, uh, what happened in 2019 post pandemic? Uh, my wife and I decided to sell the studio. And I went through a really traumatic event of trying to downsize massively. And, uh, for example, um, I, I gave away two large RK stands and a Saunders Omega 4x5 and larger because just selling it was almost impossible. I ended up trashing a whole bunch of, uh, uh, well, I sent a whole bunch of computer stuff to the electronics recycling. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, that's $100,000 worth of shit that I'm actually just recycling. But, you know, it wasn't usable anymore. So, uh, but it was all the stuff, the clutter. And then my wife made me go through, I had an entire room that I stored my film in. And she said, in our new place, you get a closet. So I had to go from a room to a closet. And uh, back in the 80s, uh, I... I shot a lot of 8x10 film. Well, that takes a lot of space and it weighs a lot of, uh, I mean, it weighs a lot. And uh, of course, I was—I would never throw anything away. So I was literally going through, and when I shot for Budweiser, I used to shoot 8x10 doing beer pours, okay? 8x10 beer pours. And I would think nothing of shooting 75 or 100 sheets of Ektrachrome in a day. Well, out of the 100 sheets, maybe one or two is worth right. saving. So right. I actually had to go through and cull and edit and and find the keepers. And that's actually one of the reasons that in the pandemic, after having done that, I'm still organizing and refinding stuff 
because, well, sadly, my wife knew where everything was, but since we moved, she doesn't know where anything is. So it's entirely up to me to find it. And my organizational skills, um, not on the computer, are very poor. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> That's one of the reasons that I, I went and looked at the work and started finding stuff that, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, what often ends up happening is that I do a shoot, I come back, you know, from Death Valley, for example, and I go through and I look and I see the successes, the things that worked when I thought they were going to work. I see the failures. Well, you know, but what I didn't necessarily see at the time under a quick glance is the hidden gems that I didn't know that I shot. Yeah. You know, yep. I shot them, but I didn't think they were important at the time. But then when I go back and look at it, sometimes the lighting's not great. Sometimes the cropping's not great. But when I look at it, they're actually better than the stuff that I liked when I first went through the edit. And I've got three trips to Antarctica that I've never done a, a serious edit on. I keep finding new stuff from Antarctica. I've, and I've been fortunate enough to, you know, uh, give workshops and shoot all over. One year I was in um, uh, Iceland and then Australia and then Antarctica. And I just you know, shoot, shoot, shoot. And even though there's Lightroom, uh, you know, it's tough to, uh, although Lightroom Mobile has this thing of finding good pictures. That's kind of scary. Have you ever used that? I have not. I don't have Lightroom Okay, Mobile. it analyzes your photographs and, and, and picks out the good ones. It's like... Oh. Yeah. Is it, does yeah. it work well? No. <laughs> no. Are you kidding? But, yeah. I mean, AI... Uh, you know, the future, uh, computer sure. um, uh, intelligence, uh, they'll be able to figure this stuff out. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we like to call what you just described as digital dumpster diving, but uh, that's a whole other topic because I like I love to go into my archives and revisit old images and like you know with fresh eyes and it's like oh that actually is pretty cool. I I'm surprised I didn't take a closer look at that. You know so. I think that's well, and that's one of the shortcomings. I think photographers, um, uh, w one of the most important classes that I had at school at RIT had nothing to do with photography. It was an elective. It was a psychology class. And I took a class called the Psychology of Creativity. I love that. And what I learned was that there are ways that you can inhibit creativity and there are ways that you can enhance creativity. Uh, and fear of failure is a great inhibitor of creativity because if, you, if, if you're so afraid of failing that you don't even try, well, then, you know, you, you, you won't achieve what you might be able to achieve um, if you don't fail. And then you learn more from your failures than your successes. Absolutely. Particularly when your failure hurts. <laughs> oh, okay, it hurts to do that. I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, so, I mean, so there's a lot of things about creativity. Uh, and one of the things about creativity is uh, learning how not to be uh, judgmental. You have to uh, divorce yourself from... Uh, basically the success or failure of what you were trying to do 
and look at the result of what you did. Uh, and then take your skills. Now, I can I can make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. You've heard that phrase? I have. Yeah. Did you know that that actually happened? No, I didn't. There is a silk purse in a, a gallery in a museum at MIT. Some guy, a, a chemist, in a way of doing self-promotion, bought a whole bunch of pig's ears from the commodity markets here in Chicago, rendered the pig's ears down and created basically a synthetic silk and turned that synthetic pig's ear silk into a purse, a silk purse out of a sow's ear. So uh, he did it as a promotional vehicle. If you Google it, Google uh, uh, silk purse out of a sow's ear, you'll read that story. Uh, But what ends up happening is that uh, unexpected, you have to learn to love spontaneity and the unexpected. Um, And and if something doesn't work, fine. It's not like it's life or death. It's not rocket science. It's not like you're going to miss the planet if you don't get it right on this shot. Um, you You know, it's not brain surgery where a little bit of millimeter left or right might leave you stupid. It's just okay, that photograph didn't work, but you'll be, you can come back and, and try again next time and with the knowledge of what didn't work so you don't have to waste time doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I think everything you just said makes a lot of sense. It's, um, I think that's why in some strange ways when we're very first starting photography and we don't have any of that baggage, we actually make pretty interesting photographs when we're first starting out. And then I think once we master, you know, the technical aspect, then the photos get worse for a little bit because we haven't, because we start having all these expectations on ourselves and things like that. At least that was my experience. I've seen it with lots of other people as well. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I think a lot of it is, um, uh, there's an awful lot of inward reflection and um, uh, there's a philosophy that I've adopted recently uh, that I think is uh, an interesting philosophy uh, and it's, it's called stoicism. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, Basically it means that um, those things that are outside of your control, don't worry about it. Those things that are inside of your control try to have a positive influence. And the the key to wisdom is knowing the difference between those two. Yeah. Uh, and and so, you know, you're out there, uh, you know, I, you get up in the morning, uh, pre-dawn, and you're stumbling around in the dark. You try to find the, the location that you remembered from the night before thinking you knew you've got a syndicator. You figure out where the sun's coming up. You're all set to take a shot. And, you know, a cloud bank comes in and you don't get a sunset or sunrise. So um, you made the effort and it didn't work. There's always tomorrow. The sun will come up tomorrow, maybe with or without beautiful clouds. Right. And there's probably hundreds of other photographs to be made that were better, would have been better with diffused light through the cloud anyway. So like, like, don't get married to the idea you had is, is a good is a good example as well, you know. And, and another thing is that uh, don't get so enamored with the sunrise that you don't see what's happening behind you. 
Right. Or at your feet or in the, yeah, in all directions, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, awesome, Jeff. Kind of winding down here, I would love for you to tell us um, a couple of names of people that we should look into or um, invite for a conversation here on the podcast. Um, one of the fellows that is uh, turned into a really good friend, he used to work for Phase One, and now he's out on his own as a photographer, Kevin Raber. He has a website. Uh, he's got the PhotoPixel website. And uh, he's got an interesting uh, background. He's a former uh, volunteer firefighter and um, started a couple of big photo labs and then went to um, um, phase one and then um, retired from that and bought Luminous Landscape, uh, the Luminous Landscape website. Uh, that didn't work out, so he started a, a new one himself. Um, he, but he was good friends with Michael Reichman. Michael was also somebody that uh, I developed a, a, a good uh, friendship with. Michael and I used to do a lot of video tutorials together. I don't know if you ever saw any of them, um, but it was two old uh, gray beards. Uh, and I used to make fun of, of, of Michael because I knew what the hell I was doing and he didn't. Um, but now Kevin and I are doing video tutorials together, and it's fun because I know what the hell I'm doing and he doesn't. Uh, don't tell him. Uh, but another person that I think would be interesting is uh, uh, my former partner and a really good photographer, Seth Resnick. Uh, he's down in uh, Florida, uh, former editorial photographer. And uh, um, so he's he's kind of a gray beard, or I don't know if he's got a beard, but he's got gray hair anyway. Uh, another friend is somebody that was influential in the early days of Photoshop a landscape photographer by the name of Stephen Johnson out on the West Coast in Pacifica. Uh, and I think it would be interesting to have somebody who is a unexpectedly good photographer uh, that you might know uh, uh, the result of his work. He, a little guy by the name of Thomas Noel. Uh, <clears throat> you know, he, he did this uh, little program called Photoshop and Camera Raw. Um, he's actually a really good photographer. So I'll see if I can get in touch with him. <clears throat> he, uh, a lot of stuff he, he, he likes talking about uh, photography. So he might be interesting. But uh, his love of photography is what helped um, him, uh, the inspiration for Photoshop. You know where Photoshop came from, right, Matt? I don't the think history? I do. I don't think I do. Well, I'll give you the URL to the history of Photoshop. I wrote an article for PEI Magazine on the 10th anniversary, which was in 2000. And uh, um, basically, John Knoll worked at Industrial Light and Magic, ILM. And he was a computer special effects supervisor on Star Wars. But they had multiple computer um, imaging systems uh, that had different um, um, outputs and different uh, file formats, and he needed an application that could take the the output from one computer and input it into another computer and then do some, like, levels adjustment or curves adjustment because they had different gamma um, targets. So his brother, Thomas Knoll, was studying computer vision in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and he asked Thomas if he could help John write this. Now, 
John actually wrote some code, although almost all the code in Photoshop was Thomas. John actually developed the concept of plugins, and he wrote several plugins. Uh, the flare filter, you know, lens flare filter, that's one of, one of his plugins. Um, and so they did this, and uh, John thought, well, boy, you know, this could be really cool. We could we could sell this as a commercial application, and he went up and down um, Silicon Valley trying to sell it to people. Um, he, he dropped off some copies to uh, Apple. In fact, that was the source of the first photo- pirated Photoshop copies came from Apple. Um, but uh, uh, he did actually license it to a scanning company, uh, and they created a. a, a a scanning um, uh, application called Barney Scan, and Photoshop was the basis for that. And they finally pitched it to uh, Adobe, and, and Russell Preston Brown was in there and enthusiastically supporting it. So they actually licensed it to uh, 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 license Photoshop to Adobe, uh, and that the first shipping copy shipped on February nineteenth. Of 19, uh, 1990, February nineteenth, nineteen ninety, wow. and uh, you know the rest is 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 history, as they say. Uh, but the interesting thing about Thomas is that he's a quiet, you know, um, humble guy. Likes doing photography, and uh, he just likes doing uh, uh, doing the right thing, kind of with uh, people's uh, uh, images. And then the other interesting thing is that uh, he quit working on Photoshop and, and, and he started, uh, they contracted him to work with Camera Raw. I've, I also know the history of Camera Raw. There are some bodies that are buried in places that I, I, I can't mention. Uh, but Camera Raw was shipped in February of 2003. And wow. guess what day? February 19th, 2003. Oh, okay. So Photoshop shipped February 19th in 1990. Camera Raw shipped February 19th uh, in 2003. And uh, when Lightroom shipped in 2007, guess what day it shipped? I'm going to guess February 19th. You would be right. I don't know why. It's one of those, there's no (coughs) grand conspiracy that explains it. It just... February 19th is really important day in uh, digital imaging and digital photography. Wouldn't you agree? And apparently so. Well, Jeff, this has been a real treat to get your perspective and talk to you about the history of your involvement in the development of these products and just to hear about your journey. So it's been, it's been really fun, my friend. Well, it does seem like we're friends now. It was good to meet you, even though it was virtually. Yeah, uh, and always. if I get a chance to run, like I said, I love Durango, so I'd love to come through and maybe you can show me some nice spots. Yeah, of course. No problem at all. That'd be awesome. Cool. Well, thanks to Jeff for joining me on today's podcast. I really had a fun time and I hope you did as well. We've included some links in our show notes to various topics that Jeff brought up, so be sure to check those out if you're curious. 
I also wanted to remind listeners that we have officially opened the Natural Landscape Photography Awards for year two. We have made a ton of improvements this year and increased the prize pool to $17,500 and added several new awards that you can win. We've also increased the prize pool for our project submissions, and we have new sponsors in FLM tripods and F-Stop gear, so there's plenty of awesome things that you can win. You can upload and change your entries at any time before August 31st, so there's no risk in entering today, even if you don't know what images you want to enter. Thank you to everyone who has supported this endeavor. We appreciate you a lot. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.